Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening Colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping the worlds of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Simon Robinson, founder of Hattingley Valley Wines, the eco-friendly winery in Hampshire. In 2008, inspired by the growing English wine industry and keen to diversify, Simon and his now head winemaker, Emma Rice, planted their first vines on Simon's farmland. They were met with scepticism, to say the least. As Simon says, Hampshire wasn't exactly renowned as a wine-producing area. But after converting an abandoned chicken shed into a high-tech 500-tonne winery in 2010 and releasing their first vintage three years later, Simon was ready to quit his day job at city law firm Slaughter and May and follow his dream full-time. Hattingley Valley Wines is now one of the largest, most successful English producers, winning over 100 awards in major international competitions and exporting to over 15 countries around the world. Do you ever think you'd be hearing those words in your career as a lawyer? Here's, here's the founder of a business and he's making wines and they're eco-friendly. Well, certainly not at the beginning, that's for sure. I think towards the end of it, yes, because by that stage, towards the end of my career as a lawyer, I mean, by that stage, the environment and stuff had come to the fore and you could begin to see the way the world was moving. Of course, it's moved much further since I first started thinking about this 20-odd 20, 20 years ago. So the answer to that is yes and no, but go back 40 years now. I wouldn't even have thought I'd be making wine, let alone eco-friendly and all the rest of it. So tell me a bit about the move from being a corporate lawyer, I'm guessing. I mean, a lawyer, but you probably yeah, focused on was, no, was, was corporate Corporate law. Mergers and acquisitions. And, and I mentioned the name of the firm at the beginning, Slaughter and May, a very famous firm. Um, you've also worked at Freshfields. You've also worked internationally. Serious business. I mean, and I should know, I, the day job is often consumed talking to lawyers about serious things. You've transitioned to become an entrepreneur, Simon. And over the years, I've met a number of lawyers who have transitioned. But you did it pretty late as well. So... Did it sneak up on you, or was there at some point a realisation that you could actually cut it as someone running their own business rather than helping other people? It was a relatively slow transition, actually. You're quite right. And I think it was driven by my own predilection for looking forward in life and wanting to know where I wanted to be and what I had to do, coupled with a realisation that the law, particularly in the city, tends to be a relatively young man's game. So people retire earlier than they would otherwise retire, possibly before they want to, for a whole variety of reasons, which I don't, I don't think is necessarily bad, actually. And I just wanted to work out what I wanted to do. And I wanted my children to grow up in the countryside, so we moved out to the country in 1992, I seem to recollect. And then I got interested in the area around us and what was going on and so forth. So we, we bought some land, and it was a slow transition, and when we had the land, we suddenly started thinking, what are we going to do? What's a, what's a good use of the land? Because I do think that if you have an asset, you need to make it work for its living. It's not a question of making money, it's a question of using it properly. And sometimes you will leave it at blank. But I was beginning to think, well, wheat prices are low, why don't we look at alternative crops? And at that point, I had an interest in wine, probably to be honest, 
not much uh, stronger. This is back in about the late 90s, the early noughties. Probably not much more than what you might call an enthusiastic amateur. But it went back a long way, back to college days. And so we started doing a bit of research as to what could be done. And about the same time, there were other wineries being started in the UK that were doing something different from what had been done previously in winemaking. And if you go back to the 1970s, English wine was really trying to find its way, I think is the best way of putting it. And by the early 80s, early 90s, people had started making champagne varietals, uh, sorry, growing champagne varietals and making sparkling wine. And more importantly, they were beginning to really show in international competitions as top quality wines. And that attracted me. My whole ethos in the law was quality, quality, quality. So when I learned that you could actually do something in the wine area and quality, that really got my juices flowing. And I'm going to pause there on a nice note. Quality, quality, quality. It'd be good if everything was of good quality, wouldn't it? Well, stay with me to find out how Simon Robinson has delivered a quality product. He's the founder. And I think you're the CEO as well. Do you give yourself a title? Uh, I don't give myself that. Just, just a founder. Chairman and... Founder, chairman, CEO. Guiding he's spirit. A, he's, every, he's everything. He's the Hattingley Valley Wines man. So you move from the law, not a naturally entrepreneurial place, much more into precision and mitigating risk. And this is what always intrigues me about lawyers that become, you know, entrepreneurs, as it were, Simon. One big part of being an entrepreneur is sort of saying, we're going to go for it. Big part of being a lawyer is saying, well, yes, but you need to think about the 18 things that might go wrong. Right at the beginning, was there the lawyer in you telling the entrepreneur in you, this is crazy? No, not really, strangely enough. And why not? And actually, I think Slaughter's in particular is a firm that... I mean, all lawyers will say this, but the whole ethos was trying to get to the position the client wanted to be in. And we had to be very inventive. And I was certainly prided myself on creating solutions for problems that, in some cases, people didn't know existed. But equally, they did know they had a problem and trying to get around it, trying to make it work for them so they could do what they wanted. It was all part of the ethos very much. Mm. So it was, from that point of view, it was a relatively simple transition. It also helped that you gained a lot of experience through talking to leaders of industry, to people who had run businesses, and you had a a sort of general business understanding. And if you're doing things like flotations and stuff like that, you got an insight into lots and lots of other people's businesses, everything from car companies Mm. to chemical companies, the whole mass of different companies. So you got experience from that point of view, or I did. And for that, that exposure, you would have latched on to two or three things that I imagine become the, the Simon Robinson philosophy, even if you wouldn't have called them those things. But in terms of the, the foundations for the business, in terms of going, right, if I'm going to deliver a quality wine, so immediately everyone goes, quality wine in England, give me a break. And even your advertising makes a very good point about it. It's English. I can't believe it's English. <laughs> yes. But if, if there were two or three things that define the approach... Was it about in-depth research? Was it about relationship with the people that were going to provide you with the grapes? What would be the, the two or three things that you said informed that? Because often entrepreneurs start in their 20s, when in reality, the other way around is you've got 30, 40 years of experience. Mm. So tell me about those two or three things you think, if you look back, what, what was defining your approach? You're right. There are one or two things, certainly, that define the approach. One of them is picking the right people. Uh, and that's probably true with every business. But particularly if you're in my situation where my knowledge of the science and intricacies of grape growing and winemaking were limited, 
finding a really top-class winemaker was an absolute boon and, and also applying enough capital to the project that we ended up with a facility that looked the part and was very much state-of-the-art. It's not just a question of eco-friendly, we've got lots of space, it's got brand new equipment, or it had when we started, and I defined it as doing it properly. So do it properly, find the right people, and I was really lucky, and there was an element of luck in this, I've got to confess, but you know everyone needs a bit of luck in life. Uh, we were directed towards Emma, Emma Rice, who had just come back from Tasmania, I think, where she'd done a cold climate vintage, and they make lots of sparkling wine in Tasmania, as I'm sure you know. And she was looking for a job. <laughs> of course I knew that, Simon. I mean, obviously, the Tasmanian, your Tasmanian wine knowledge is very deep. It's very you never deep. Know. Now, you do, it's true, you don't know. You, you never but, know. But You'd now you know I really didn't know. <laughs> yeah, quite. So, um, sorry, do, do it properly, find the right people, and, and a bit of luck. And a bit of luck. And Emma came along, and she got a wonderful brief from, a, from someone, which was, here you are, Emma, let's build a winery together. You advise me what to do, you design it, help with the design. And uh, she ended up with a winery she loved and you know, went from there. And I suppose the, the one other element, this will pro- if Emma ever hears this, it'll probably make her laugh. I have an attitude which is, there are no problems in life, there's only missing solutions. And if someone comes to me and says, we can't do this because of so-and-so, I'd say, well, how are you going to get around it? How are you going to solve the problem? It's a slight truism to say you can always solve it. You can't always, of course. But you need to try really hard, I think, in every business to solve the problems that you are facing. That's what business management is about. Stay with me to find out more about how Simon Robinson has been solving problems ever since then and indeed how he solved the problem of the pandemic, which has impacted everybody, including his business. He'll be back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Dere's Victoria Piggott talks about ESG, that's environmental, social and governance, and what the resulting long-term benefit is for businesses putting purpose before profit. The Mishcon Academy digital sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. People have always made choices based on their beliefs. And so socially responsible investing is is not new. But ESG is relatively new. The phrase was first coined in 2005. And socially responsible investing and ESG are actually different. So ESG is based on an assumption that ESG factors have financial relevance It was the former UN Secretary Kofi Annan who really started the movement in 2005 and he wrote to 50 chief execs of major financial institutions because he wanted to integrate ESG into the capital markets. He was saying it's good business sense, it's more sustainable and it's better for society. So obviously it's been going on for 15 years and there are some people who say, well, you know, maybe this is a fad. But I don't think that's right either, because if you look at the way in which technology has enabled everything to be more transparent, the data is available. And you have to look at people's access to tech, which empowers them to express their own values in investing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to compromise on returns. A really obvious example here is climate change and how scientific certainty has forced directors towards good stewardship because the impact that businesses can have on the environment is now incredibly clear. 
the Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker, be pleasant to it and ask it to play Jazz Shapers and there you'll find a taster of our recent shows. But back to my guest today, it's Simon Robinson, founder of Hattingley Valley Wines, the eco-friendly winery in Hampshire. I've read in a few places and it's kind of apparent in the way you describe the story that being traditional, going and doing what other people have done in terms of creating a wine business, having quality in there, creating a brand, doing what they did wasn't going to work for you. You use the words do it properly, which I really like. We should write a book on doing it properly. How have you maintained the disruptive nature of the way you look at things over the last few years and specifically what happened in the pandemic? Well, I think the first thing that we did that was different from what I'd regard as our competitors or perhaps friends is even almost a better way of describing them, is that we decided very early on, in fact, right from the start of when we released wine in 2013, that exports were going to be a key part of our platform and that the restaurant and on-trade were another key part and that we wouldn't open a shop, things like that, on the site for a variety of different reasons, some good, some bad. So we concentrated on wholesale distribution through to the restaurant trade and exports. And we built our exports up relatively rapidly, I think. And I still think that is a really important sector for everybody because it's obviously a world market, not just UK market. And it means that the industry will be able to grow without putting all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. But you ask about the pandemic. Well, as of April March, April last year, 2020, fundamentally the the on-trade, the restaurants and trade collapsed completely because they were all locked down and the export trade collapsed as well. So we were left with a very much diminished trade that we were facing. And we sat back and said, well, what are we going to do now? And my commercial director said, well, we're just going to start selling direct to the consumer. And within a space of three or four weeks, and this is one of the joys of being a small business, we don't have to go through layers and layers of bureaucracy. Gareth talked to me and uh, did I want to do this? I just said, yeah, let's give it a go. And we did a television advert. We were the first UK winery, we believe, ever to have advertised on television. And some of you, will, I'm sure, have seen the advert. It's got a nice little turn on poking the French gently in the eye. And uh, but the French people You're so I know, civilised, Simon. The, the, the French people I know actually love it. I bet I they did. It's, yeah. really, it's really oh, good. It's, it's great. great. Yeah. I, I, yeah, you should watch it. If you want to see it, it's on YouTube if you haven't seen it on television. But it is, it's really cute. And it yeah. goes to the fire in communication terms of the issue, which is English wine won't be any good. Yeah. And, you've, and that's Absolutely. the point. And then that's actually, some people would say that's a problem. You'd say, well, it's a missing solution. Yeah. yeah. And, and the industry as a whole knows that it's producing really good quality wines now that the professional producers are and there's an awful lot of them now it's not just a few people there's a lot of them and actually the trade knows it too and increasingly the trade outside the uk knows it as well so getting through to the ultimate consumer was very important and we did it as i say through tv advertising we did quite a lot of social media advertising and promotion i think perhaps is a better way particularly through facebook And that proved to be very successful, coupled with some direct discounting that we did. And 
cut a long story short, our April budget we didn't meet. Our May budget we greatly exceeded, hugely exceeded by about 40%, I think, if I remember correctly. And we've never missed a budget since. And so we've now developed a very large direct-to-consumer business. Why did that happen? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. One is, obviously, we started promoting it. But I also think the public here, there has been a move. They want to support local producers, and particularly if they're very local to where they live. Uh, But even not very local, they will support. And the message has got out, we can make good wine. Not just good wine, absolutely top-quality wine. And that's the most important thing. But one revenue stream has turned into two, and that can't be a bad I'd say two into three, actually. Export export on trade and DTC. There you go. There has to be a level of competitiveness. And even when you talked about your competition, you said, well, they're really my friends. And I know that I think you chaired an industry body for a while, which I think was called, you will remind me. Wines of Great Britain. Wines of Great Britain, and that was for a few years. So... There's this person in front of me who's incredibly collaborative, I think, and very civilised in his approach. And indeed, all the clients you would have met would probably say the same over the years. Do you have to change when you run your own business? Do you have to sort of put that at the door and say, no, I've got to find a way through this? The pandemic is there. Or is it less personal than that against other people? Is it more about running your own? I think running a business is all about keeping a variety of different groups happy and enthusiastic and first and foremost obviously you've got to keep your own staff happy and that's absolutely critical clearly you can't do everything that they would like but equally if they think you're being fair with them then i think most people will support you i some years ago i ran into a couple who ran a small business in the middle of the united states making stop signs for roads and i thought you know capitalism red in tooth and claw in the US, this will be a business that's run ruthlessly. And I asked them how many people they'd lost out of their 135 they employed. They said they'd only lost one in the last 18 months, which I thought was a really interesting comment on people who were running a business. And I think that's one of the keys. Obviously, the other big constituents you have to keep happy are your customers. Mm. But if you're doing a good job producing high-quality wine that the customers are enjoying and the workforce feels proud of producing and you're looking after them, you should have a good business. And is your sense of well-being in yourself different now to when you were advising clients? As much as you would have enjoyed, I imagine, the intellectual stimulation and the the, the, the fun of helping clients do their thing, is it is it of a different magnitude now that it's your own show? Yes, it is to a degree. There was always, as you rightly say, enjoyment from giving really good advice mm. and, and seeing people get what they want. But there's always a difference between being an advisor and being a principal. And uh, I've had a lot of fun being a principal. It's a bit of heartache as well. But, you know, you get there in the end and that's that's fine. And the stress that might come with it, although you don't look stressed at all, I hasten to it doesn't look very stressed whatsoever, <laughs> smiling happily and, uh, and very jocular. But if there is stress, where does that get managed? The biggest stress probably comes on the finance side. And we had to work very hard to get ourselves into a stable position like that. And if I can do one little prod, it'd be really nice if the big English banks would support the wine industry. At the moment, we are being supported by a very, very high quality American asset based financier called PNC. And they've made all the difference in the world to to us. We can now concentrate on making good wine and selling it well and so forth. When it comes to competition, You're absolutely right, strangely enough. 
English wine is still a relative, although we see it as a, a rapidly expanding, and it is very rapidly expanding product and market. In the world terms, we are a very small industry, very small. Champagne produces around 300 million bottles a year. We produce probably about 10, 12 million bottles a year. And that gives you some idea. We've got lots of potential and it will grow uh, a long way between now and 2040, 2050. But one of the impacts of that is that the various people in the industry see it as important to work together. The success of one is still the success of all, and particularly in export. There's no point in Hattingley being the only bottle on the shelf in America because mm. people will see it as an oddity and they'll wonder why there's only one of it. I'd much rather see 10 or 12 and a little category of English wines over there. And again, with one or two honourable exceptions, I'd quite like to encourage the supermarkets in this country to devote a section to English wine. At the moment, you'll see a section of Australian, Chilean, American, all the rest of it, and the English comes under other. So if you're a supermarket or a bank, I think <laughs> you've heard a really strong message here from my business shaper, Simon Robinson, get behind English wine. We'll have a final chat with Simon and play an absolute classic from Esperanza Spalding. That's all coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, Simon Robinson is my business shaper. And as you heard earlier, I hope, the founder of Hattingley Valley Wines. And they're an English wine company in the lovely hills and flats of Hampshire. Don't know the geography of Hampshire particularly well. I've driven through it a number of times. Rolling, rolling hills. Rolling hills, there you yeah. go. And you'd, you'd find the adjective for me. And it's important, actually, the hills part and land. The whole environmental piece, to me, has become, you know, 25 years ago when my friends were going into environmental consultancies and everyone was talking about how important the planet was. No one was listening. Ten years ago, more people were listening. Five years ago, more people were listening. In the last 18 months, suddenly, literally, the world is on fire and everyone is listening to the notion of using land properly. You started there. The connection you have with land and the use of it, are you mindful that you are just looking after it, as it were, for the next generation? And if so, what do you do on a daily basis to make sure that there's sustainability at the core of your use of the land? Well, the answer to that, in short, is yes, very much, and always has been. And on the farm, we were very early taking up a lot of the conservation schemes that were being offered 20, 25 years ago. You know, we planted miles and miles of hedgerows. We do grass margins, uh, bird seed, wild birds mixed margins and all the rest of it, which, to be honest, yeah, we get paid for it, but we'd probably do better if we were growing crops, if the honest truth were known. And it does worry me slightly that some of that may well be lost in the future, but... We'll just have to see the way the world goes. In terms of sustainability and the vineyards, actually vineyards are pretty pretty environmentally friendly. We use far less sprays and herbicides and things like that than we would on, say, wheat or barley. It's much less of a monoculture, and it's probably, I would think, taking up a lot more carbon dioxide out of the air. Of course, admittedly, we then produce some of it when we ferment the wine, but there's no way we can get around that. We've looked long and hard at uh, some kind of carbon capture for the wine production, but it's, there just doesn't seem to be the technology available at the moment. In terms of scale, though, of course, one of the mm. things that capitalism is all about is growth. Mm. So if you're going to grow and you're going to scale up, is there then a challenge with the way the land is used, or is it simply cut-paste and you just do what you did on the X number of 
thousands of hectares, you then just do the same again? I'm not sure about thousands. Well, but hundred, hundreds. <laughs> no, tens. Tens. <laughs> Uh, one of the interesting things about the wine business is you don't actually need a great deal of land to make a viable business, um, depending on how you do it. And the more important thing for the wine business is the site and its suitability for growing. England, and southern England in particular, has a big advantage in that geologically it's a big chalk bed, particularly in Hampshire as it happens, but there are chalk in Sussex and Kent. And preferably below 100 metres in altitude, but not absolutely essential just means you get lower yields but one important thing is decent drainage and south facing so all that adds together that it's not just a question of planting the way you might plant other crops you have to select the sites yeah. and there's a lot of land in southern england that is suitable tens of thousands of acres or hectares if you prefer but not all of it will be planted and it's probably in total amounts to roughly the same amount of land as Champagne has. Not all of that will be planted by any means. At the moment, we're at about 5,000 hectares, I think, across the country, which is, we've doubled in size as a country over the last three to four years, and my guess is we'll probably carry on expanding quite rapidly over the next five to ten years. And you want to grow, I imagine. Absolutely. I mean, why would we not? Every business wants to grow. From the point of view of the environment, it must make sense to make wine, bottle it here and sell it locally rather than import it from potentially thousands of miles away. Mm. And indeed, I recall, I was in South Africa years ago and I heard a story that the Huguenots brought soil over. That oh, really? Soil, yeah, to South Africa to then create equivalent French one. I thought that was an amazing story. Anyway, let's hope that English soil, yeah. soil from Hampshire gets exported, but obviously in a, in a very carbon-friendly way. I don't, I don't think we'll export the soil. No, keep the soil. <laughs> yeah. It's been really nice talking to you, Simon, and good luck and with, you. with the growth. Thank you. Um, and continue to, to enjoy it because you, you look like a happy person and that's a good thing. Thank you. And not that you weren't happy before, of course, but this is another level of happiness now that you're... Absolutely. ...realising your potential. Fun. Fun, exactly. Just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, I have to confess these days I probably listen more to classical uh, music, but having said that, and I'm sorry, that's probably a sin in this, this it's okay. context. I occasionally do too. A bit of Bach always does <laughs> exactly. the spirit, spirit some good. Um, but I used to dabble when I was younger with uh, with jazz. And indeed, I in the early 70s, I went to what I think was the last concert given by Duke Ellington in London. I think it was 1974, but you could probably haul me up on that. And so what I'd like to hear is just something from Duke Ellington, but perhaps I could leave you to make the choice. Well, I've left the choice to my brilliant producer, Stuart, and Stuart has chosen, just to be clear, REM Blues featuring Charlie Mingus and Max Roach, and here it is just for you. That was Duke Ellington with REM Blues featuring Charlie Mingus and Max Roach, the artist that my business shaper, Simon Robinson, chose. He's the founder of Hattingley Valley Wines. He talked about wanting to deliver a quality product. Whatever he did, he wanted it to be high quality. He talked about finding the right people about investing properly, about not having problems but simply missing solutions and overall doing things properly. I love that mantra. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.